Well, pray with me once again before we study God's Word together. Father, it is a great, great reality that we can, we can know You. And we know You, even as this text says, by looking into the face of Jesus. We can know about the glory of God. And we've all been impressed, those of us who are Christians, with Your greatness as we've looked to Jesus. And as impressed as we have been, we would ask that You would help us to continue to look to Christ so that we may see your glory. That is our desire. It's our desire as individual Christians. It's certainly our desire collectively as a church together that we would look to Christ and see your glory, to be humbled by it, to be motivated by it, and certainly to be motivated to praise you as a result of your great grace in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. I want to read a quotation uh, by way of introduction this morning. It won't be from Romans 13. I want to read a quotation from Jesus. And uh, it's a weighty quotation, but if you would just listen to these words, uh, and then we'll go ahead and turn to the section of Scripture as well. Here's what Jesus says. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace, on, peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. End of quotation. Delightful words. Sober words, words from our Lord Jesus Christ. And I would like you to turn your Bibles with me, if you would, where we find this in Matthew chapter 10 this morning. And we are going to take a closer look at these, what some have said are hard sayings of Jesus. There are those sayings of Jesus that are tremendously encouraging, and there's encouragement in this passage, but there are those sayings of Jesus that are hard. They've been hard for people to swallow. They've been hard for people to embrace. Not hard to understand, but challenging. Maybe challenging our cultural understanding, uh, challenging what we thought we knew about Jesus. And so I thought it would be helpful for us to look at this business of discipleship. And we're going to talk about what I might call today true discipleship from Matthew chapter 10. And we'll do that as we work through this passage. As we do, you'll be able to highlight four behaviors four behaviors that are characteristic of disciples. So if you're taking notes, you can write down these four behaviors that are characteristic of disciples. And when I say disciple this morning, or when uh, Jesus uses disciple, it means learner, it means follower, uh, you might say understudy, you might say pupil. Uh, it was used in New Testament times as it's been used after that, but it was certainly used for those who would be mentored by another if you wanted to learn a certain trade, trade you might be discipled by your uh, parent who did the same thing. You might even pay uh, a Jewish philosopher, if that's what you wanted to do, to pay them to be their disciple so that you might be a learner, so that you might be a pupil, so that you might be an understudy. And what's interesting about the word disciple in Christianity and in the Bible is early on in the book of Acts, it's Acts 10 or Acts 11, I don't recall off the top of my head, but Christians are called, or excuse me, disciples are called Christians. And so when you see disciple, you can put equal sign, Christian. Or if you see Christian, you could say equal sign, disciple. A disciple is a Christian, a Christian is a disciple, and we're going to learn about what it means to be a disciple. Therefore, we're going to learn about what it means to be a Christian. And most of us here today are professing Christians. If you're not, at least you're knowing what you might be getting into. Um, but let's, let's try our best by God's grace to set aside what we think. No doubt there'll be some of that. I can't help but do that because I'm not just going to read it. 
But let's try to set aside even those things ultimately and say, what does Jesus say is true about a Christian so that I can know if I am a Christian? What does Jesus say so that I can know what I would want to do and find encouragement in as someone who professes to be a Christian? Okay? Well, we're not going to vote on it. It's what we're going to do anyway. But I thought it would be nice for me to ask. (laughs) Looking forward to this, to find some encouragement, to find some conviction be stirred up by the Spirit of God. Let's look at this first behavior that's characteristic of a true disciple. Number one, a true disciple confesses Christ. A true disciple confesses Christ. And we see this in verses 32 and 33. Go ahead and look there with me, if you would, at Matthew 10. So everyone, Jesus says, who acknowledges... So it's not just the 12, it's not just the many other disciples who who were alive during his time. He broadens it. So everyone who acknowledges, or as some other translations have said, confesses me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. 33, but whoever denies, so notice the, the, the contrast from acknowledge or confess is deny. Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Observation number one, Jesus is an extremist. Jesus is clear. Uh, Jesus is very clear. Jesus is giving hope. How about the hopeful statement? We usually read this as a hard statement, but how about the hopefulness of it? If you acknowledge Jesus before others, he says, I will acknowledge you before my Father. And really, that's the essence of Christianity. That's what we're looking for. At the end of the day, what do I want more than anything in the world? I want Jesus to claim me as his own to the Father. That's what I want. That's what you want. When we talk about being reconciled to God, it's through the blood of Christ. When we talk about uh, having a mediator between God and man, it's the man Christ Jesus. I want Jesus to claim me as his own. As I struggle with sin, and I do, and so do you if you're a Christian, I need to have an advocate with the Father who is none other, none other than Jesus Christ the righteous. I need him to say, Pat Abendroth, covered by my blood, sinner though he is, I need him to acknowledge me before his Father, and so do you. And so we can know that Jesus offers this great hope, he offers this great promise, And a disciple is going to acknowledge him and therefore be acknowledged by him. The opposite is also true. If you don't acknowledge Christ before men, as he says, then he won't acknowledge you either. It's pretty straightforward. Do you confess Christ? Not just in private, in the privacy of your own little domain, your own little kingdom, where it's safe context here, by the way, which we're just jumping into, but before is about persecution for disciples. When you step out of your own little kingdom, your own little cosmos, your own little safety zone, do you confess Christ? Do you agree with Jesus about who he said he was? That's what it would mean to to confess Christ. You acknowledge him, not just saying Jesus, but what is true about Jesus What Jesus actually said about Jesus. Do you confess Him? If you do, not just where it's easy, but even where it's hard, that's a good sign that you are a disciple, that you are a Christian. And this is meant to be encouraging to us. If when the hard times come and while you say Jesus here where it's safe to say Jesus and and where the hard times come and you don't say the truth about Christ, you don't embrace the truth about Christ, you don't confess Christ where it's hard, then it's a good idea for you to not have assurance that you really are a disciple. It's a good idea for you not to be confident that Jesus is going to affirm you because he says right here, if you don't confess me before men, I won't confess you before my Father, which is what really matters. So I love it that Jesus is clear. I love it that while it's controversial, he's not sugarcoating it. He's just being honest and earnest and straightforward so that we can know and have confidence about what it really means to be a disciple. Interestingly enough, this idea of of confessing or acknowledging starts uh, to become adopted in the New Testament as just 
something that we do and we have done and we do regularly as Christians. We even talk about our confessions. Historically, there have been confess- churches have had their confessions. There, there are statements acknowledging what is true about Jesus, specifically the gospel. You confess Christ before men. All of a sudden, that same word takes on a, uh, not a meaning of its own, but a more matured kind of concept and idea in the New Testament. You affirm the gospel. You affirm that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You're, you're holding fast to the confession, the confession about Christ. Just listen to some of, of the places where it's used. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says to Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith. See, it's gospel talk. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The gospel affirmation, the gospel confession. Hebrews 3.1, Therefore, holy brothers, you, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. We're affirming the truth of the gospel in Christ. Hebrews 4.14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. See how this is complementing our text. And Jesus saying, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. Then in the New Testament, we have this urging to professing Christians, to professing disciples. Like in Hebrews, reminding us that Jesus is worth it. Reminding us that even if there's cost involved in suffering, He's worth it. Hold fast. It's this brotherly talk. Hold fast to the confession. Hold fast to the gospel. And so pastorally, I want to do that today in your life. I want this text to do that in my life. We need to remember that if we're really disciples, we're truly Christians, we are going to confess Christ. And we're going to hold on to that good gospel confession. Even where it costs us something. Even in public. Where the true test of where we really are is, right? It's easy for me to tell one of my daughters what to do and for one of my daughters to say, yes, Dad. And to even maybe have her do it in our home. It's a whole other story when she's out around her peers. And Daddy isn't there and Daddy isn't watching and the true character comes out. You do this if you're a parent. You've done this if you've been a daughter. When you're in the tough spot, Do you affirm? Do you affirm the gospel, the true gospel? That's what he's getting at. That's what he's getting at. Which is not always easy to do. Pretty radical statement about Jesus here, by the way, just so we don't miss it. If you look at uh, 32 and 33, uh, pretty, pretty amazing. I mean, if this, guy, if this guy isn't really the son of God, he is the biggest megalomaniac on planet Earth ever. I like to use the word megalomaniac at least once a year because it's one of my favorite words. Uh, he's not just an egomaniac. He is the ultimate in egomaniacs, right? He's not a good guy and a prophet unless he really truly is the son of God because he does say, if you notice in verse 32, who, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father. He's not claiming to be a prophet. He's claiming to be none other than the son which is why we would want to acknowledge him, even when it's hard. We're talking about the Son. He does the same thing in verse 33. Denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father. And also, in case you missed it, do notice it's everyone and whoever. So this isn't only something limited. We can say that was only for then. This doesn't apply now. It was only the 12. No, it's, it's very broad. So we see it there. Leon Morris is a, is a favorite commentator amongst Bible students. Leon Morris so aptly puts, uh, sums up these two verses like this. There is no point in having followers who do not follow. I like that. That's the kind of commentary I like to keep reading. It makes it simple and to the point. There is no point in having disciples who don't disciple. There's no point in having followers who don't follow. What's the point? This is just word talk. It's the ultimate in hypocrisy. 
Jesus wants true disciples, true followers, who show that they really, truly believe in Him and trust in Him, and He is going to confess them before His Father or affirm them before His Father. Well, just one more thing before we move on to this second behavior characteristic, and that would be to point out to you that this is talking about people like you and like me, individuals, but interestingly enough, in the book of Revelation where Jesus addresses the seven churches, he uses the same word for denying, the same concept, the same idea there applied to churches, churches like Omaha Bible Church. Addressing the church of Philadelphia in chapter 3, verse 8. He says, they have not denied my name. It's the same idea. He affirms the Philadelphia church, unlike some of the other churches, because they are continuing to, maybe if I could borrow from Hebrews, they're continuing to hold fast the good confession. So let's think about that for a moment in terms of Omaha Bible Church. If you're a member of Omaha Bible Church, let's think about that in terms of what we would want to do collectively as a local church if we're going to be affirmed by Jesus, whose opinion ultimately is the only one that matters. What we are going to do is we are going to hold fast the good confession. We're going to confess Christ, specifically the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, before others so that we can have the confidence that He is not going to deny us because we're not denying Him. And you say, this is kind of rudimentary. This is kind of kindergarten-ish. Why are we talking about this? After all, we're a church. Well, if you read about the other churches, most of the churches fail the test to one degree or another. And so we'll have a decision to make in the year 2011. We'll have a decision to make in the year 2012. I have a decision to make as a pastor. Your other pastors do. We as a congregation, we're made up of individuals. We have to make the decision time and time again. Will we make the good confession? Will we continue to make the good confession? Will we continue to say, we believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and we will do whatever it takes to promote that. We will do whatever it takes to defend that because that is none other than the good confession about Jesus. And history would have us to know that many churches have done that. We find encouragement in that. History would have us to know that many churches who have done that don't do that today. So let's swallow hard. Embrace the promise of Jesus in the positive. If you confess Him before men, He will confess you before His Father. Embrace the negative of what Jesus says. If you deny Him before men, He will deny you before His Father. If Jesus isn't in what we're doing, then I don't want to do it anymore. I don't know about you. Let's make it a gospel-centric existence. Holding fast. Borrowing from Jude. Holding forth the word of truth. To use another synonym. That's what we do. That's who we are. That's what makes our heart beat by God's grace if we really are Christians. If we really are a legitimate church. Let's move on to a second behavior characteristic of every true disciple and that would be a true disciple understands the divisiveness of Christ. A true disciple understands the divisiveness if you prefer divisiveness of Christ in 34, 35, and 36. You ready for this? You're not ready for this. I don't know how we could ever be ready for this. This is is meant to be provocative. This is meant to poke you in the eye, if not worse. I mean, this is one of those rattle your cage kinds of statements. And so let's let's not try to domesticate it. Let's try to feel the, the weightiness of what it would be like to hear these words from Jesus because we are hearing these words from Jesus. Verse 34, do not think. Perhaps we're prone to think this. So he says, I don't want you to think that way. Maybe even to push it, stop thinking this way. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, just coming off of Christmas, your your mind is rattled. And you say, what? What about the angel in Luke chapter 2? Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. What about Isaiah 9, 6? He's the Prince of Peace. 
How does this work? Jesus says, you know what? I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. How does this work? Well, for starters, if you read Isaiah 9-6, it definitely finds its fulfillment in the second coming of Christ. He'll bring ultimate peace. Oh, by the way, he'll bring ultimate peace in part through a sword. Ultimately, there's going to be peace because of Christ. But let's make sure we don't somehow fail to have a a, a biblical understanding of who he is more holistically. Let's not just have the one-dimensional Jesus who is peace and never says anything controversial and uh, never creates any division whatsoever. Let's not have just that Jesus. Yes, there will be peace. But he, in no uncertain terms, because perhaps he was thinking that we were only singing the Christmas songs. I don't know. Obviously not. But he's, he's thinking that you went to the same Sunday school class I went to my whole, my whole life. Don't think that I came to bring peace on earth. I came to bring a sword. Wow. Let that rock your mind. You say, that's not the Jesus I know. Praise God, you're here today. Because Jesus says, make sure you think in these terms. Now, what does a sword do? I asked my kids that yesterday, and they're like, you know, they said all kinds of grotesque things, gruesome things. (laughs) Essentially, what a sword does, and we know this from the context, this is where he's going, a sword divides, right? If you take a sword and even gently do this to my arm right now, if it's a sword worth its swordness, it divides my skin. It separates. And if you do it very hard, I will lose a limb. Jesus is not talking about being some sort of uh, anarchist. I came to divide. I came to bring division. Now, again, let's, let's have a holistic biblical picture. Jesus clearly unites, absolutely, read Galatians. It's not Jew or Gentile. It's not male nor female. He brings us together and makes us one in Christ, right? Every tribe, tongue, nation early chapters in the book of Revelation. So the diversity is there, but we're all made one in Christ. That's clear as could be. Here, what is he talking about? I came to bring a sword. I came to bring division. Believers and unbelievers. People who will follow me and embrace the truth about me and people who won't. That's obviously what he's talking about. And we're going to read on and see that he, again, is not talking about bearing arms. Uh, He's talking about division, and we need to know if we're really disciples that he is divisive. He absolutely is uniting, but in a different sense, he is dividing. Verse 34, do not think. So we've got to know this is true about him. And I think the bigger context would have us to know the division comes on whether you're, not, whether you're going to acknowledge Him or not acknowledge Him. You're going to acknowledge Him or deny Him. And He says, I came to bring division. There will be those who do and there will be those who don't. And it's going to not always be a pretty thing. Well, He explains what He means in verse 35. So let's keep working through it and get away from what I'm saying and get to what He's saying. In 35, He says, For I have come to set a man against his father. So we see he's speaking figuratively with a sword, no doubt, in light of what he says in 35. I came to set a man against his father. Radical. Can you believe it? Amazing that he would say that? Now, he's, he's, he's not saying uh, don't honor your father and mother. In fact, he confronts the Pharisees through their religious conundry, if that's a word, as they're trying to tell everybody, to, if you're really spiritual, give us all your money and don't take care of mom and dad, it doesn't matter. Jesus confronts them for that. He upholds the law that says honor father and mother. So he's clearly not talking about that. He's talking about this business of acknowledging him or denying him. And when it comes to that, he will, if necessary, bring division even in that close relationship between a dad and a son which is a big deal in our culture. It's accentuated in other cultures where you've got the oldest son being heir to the family. In one sense, that would be one of the very closest relationships. And Jesus, 
no doubt in the flow, no doubt in the context, comes along and says, when it comes to me and the truth about me and the confession about me, i.e. the gospel, the good confession about me, I didn't come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. And it will mean division even on that good and close level. Always? No. But it will mean that. Wow. See, we're not ready for that. Some of you have parents who are Christians and you get along wonderfully. Some of you have children who are Christians and you get along wonderfully. But he's certainly saying this is something that's going to happen. I often wonder. My father died when I was a teenager. I often wonder what it would be like. I wasn't a Christian and neither was he when he died. I wonder what it would be like if he were alive today. I so wish he was. I so miss my dad. I want to hang out with my dad. I want to ride motorcycles with my dad. I mean, I just, this isn't counseling time for Pat. But anyway, I just miss my dad. But I wonder what, what would it be like? What would it be like? And as much as I would cherish that relationship with him, and I would, and the older that I get, the more that I know I would cherish it, I would know also that it may be a horrible, horrible rift between us when it comes to Jesus. It may not be. But it may be, and I would have a decision to make. Am I going to confess Jesus? Am I going to hold fast to the good confession whether my dad thinks it's a good idea that I'm a Jesus freak or not a good idea? At my closest relationship, and Jesus is making it clear that you should confess him. Some of you can relate to these things. Some of you can relate on a living level right here and right now because you know what it feels like to have the division even at this close familial level. This is a text for you. Hebrews is for you too, by the way. It's worth it. He will acknowledge you before His Father. It is so worth it. Well, He doesn't just do fathers and sons. In verse 35, He continues on, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. E yikes. And the longer I'm a Christian, and the more I read the Bible, the more I think, this wasn't written 2,000 years ago. <laughs> well, I actually think it was. But the more you see fleshed out the fact that people are the same, and Jesus knew what he was talking about. And it makes the Bible very, very real in its application. Some of you know all about this. Division at its most close level. Those cherished relationships sometimes get broken. Jesus is here having us to know that it's worth it to follow him, even if it's going to cost you some of those relationships. If you would, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Let's get some insight from this because this can be a little bit of a challenge because we're, this is pre-cross, this is pre-birth of the church, if you will, and we say to ourselves, well, this is, I don't really know how this fleshes itself out after Jesus rose from the dead and all that, and is it still the same, and what's the division look like, and how does this relate to the gospel itself? I think if you turn to 1 Corinthians 1, 18, you'll see Paul is chiming in, and it's essentially the same issue. In 1 Corinthians 1, 18, I had you turn a long way just to read one verse, but I think it's helpful. It says in verse 18, For the word of the cross, that's shorthand for gospel, Right? For the word of the cross, the truth about Christ, we might call that, that's the good confession. The word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Division. That's sword-created division. Okay, what are you going to do with Jesus? Well, I'm going to say that he was a guy that lived in Palestine and was not very educated other than his father and you know what for most of his life ministry he was homeless 
So I'm going to say anybody who follows, oh, and he, he says he rose from the dead. I think he's a whack job, and anybody who follows him is more of a whack job. Or I'm going to say, I believe what he said about himself, and I believe that it's true, and I'm in good company, and you know what? I've got atonement. I've got forgiveness. I've got reconciliation to God. And you see, it's a sword verse, and the division is made. Some say that's foolishness. Some say that's the power of God unto salvation. It's hope for me. I believe it. But Jesus is divisive. The gospel is divisive. Say, I believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, because the Bible and the Bible alone is my authority. And somebody's going to say, well, if you believe that, then I'm against you. It's divisive. And again, this gets in your family. I think we should tell people this before we try to get them to pray the sinner's prayer. In one sense, I think we should try to talk them out of it. Right? Count the cost is what Jesus said. You need to stop and think about whether or not you're ready for this battle. Are you really ready to go to war? You say, but if that happens, less people are going to become Christians. No, they're not. Read 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. At your leisure, in its fullness, the called of God will believe the gospel. And some of you, I, again, know are struggling with this very matter because we just got done with the holidays and it wasn't very pretty, perhaps, because of these kinds of issues. Hopefully it wasn't just because we're all sinners, and even though that's true, there become tensions around the gospel. You might need to be encouraged. Know that following Jesus is worth it. Know that Jesus didn't promise you your best life now and all of a sudden it seems like he didn't know what he was talking about. He said, I came to bring a sword. And it has every potential of dividing your most cherished, closest relationships. Read, it'll feel like your worst life now. Be encouraged by that. You got to know that. Let's not hide this stuff. Let's talk about this stuff. I remember becoming a Christian in college. And I'm thinking the whole world is going to be thrilled. Shows you how naive I am. I mean, I'm thinking this is about the greatest thing in the world that this has happened. I can't believe this is amazing. I want to go to church now. Hello. I'm going to even go sober. Right? I mean, this is, this is, I want to read the Bible. I don't even read books. It just was the most amazing thing. And you're, if you're a Christian, you say, I, I've understood what it means to have new life in Christ. And it was awesome. And I remember thinking that some of the most religious people I knew were my not-yet-in-laws. They went to church all the time. I remember going home to Molly's house for a weekend one time, and I'm just so excited. I got a Bible. I'm going to Bible study. We're reading. We're studying Romans at a Bible study. A, we're studying the Bible at a Bible study? This is amazing. <laughs> from my background and so I'm just going on and on about this stuff and I wasn't ready to get the ultra freezing cold dry ice cold shoulder it was very confusing for me totally confusing to me and it's remained somewhat confusing but know that Jesus is talking to people who are religious people. But he's making it about him and the gospel. And that's a divisive thing. Because the gospel is not, in one sense, it's not religion friendly. Because what do you have to do? To embrace the gospel, you have to acknowledge that you're a sinner who deserves to go to hell. Well, that pretty much is a downer. And you have to acknowledge that Jesus is your only hope. Your only righteousness. Oh, my contribution, filthy rags. 
And I've got to trust in him and him alone, not in my family, though I might be grateful for my family. I've got to trust in him and him only. Maybe, therefore, even going against family tradition. Jesus came to bring a sword. We're thankful where it doesn't cut. But we need to know that it does cut places where it's going to hurt. Is it worth it? Read Hebrews. Yes, 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 yes. It's worth it. Where else should we go? Where else can we get atonement? But we do need to know this. By the way, find some encouragement from Jesus when people think you're nuts. Mark chapter 3, verse 21. And when his family heard it, this is the teaching of Jesus, they went out to seize him. I think some translations say lay hands on him, but it has confusing meaning. <laughs> For they were saying, he is out of his mind. Hebrews refers to Jesus as your elder brother. Just know that your older brother went through it too. In fact, they thought he was a whack job. So when everybody thinks you're a whack job, you know what? They did it to Jesus. You're in good company. Keep confessing him. Hold fast to the good confession. All right, let's move on. Number three, third behavior characteristic of every true disciple is a true disciple loves Christ more than anyone. We'll do this one quickly in verse 37 because we've already essentially laid the ground, groundwork. A true disciple loves Christ more than anyone. 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Can't fault him from being unclear. Again, if you, if you love him more, then you're not worthy. You don't belong. He's not saying don't love your mom. He's not saying don't love your dad. But if you love them more, then you're not worthy. All right. So then application. Who do you love more than anyone in the world? Well, you know the right answer. It's church. It's Jesus. Ask your kids that after Sunday school. Who did you learn about? Jesus. Hopefully they say that. In our passage, we learned the true place to learn about that is when you're before other people. Do you confess him or deny him? Just love Christ most. Love Christ most because he's the one who's before the Father. He's the one who has the power to confess you or deny you. Love Christ most because he and he alone is the one who lived a sinless life. Love Christ most because he and he alone died a sinner's death, a perfect atoning death. Love Christ most because he and he alone rose again from the dead. Love Christ most. That's all. If you're really a disciple of Jesus, you've got to know that. And when the time comes for you to have to make the decision, am I going to show my love for Christ here or am I going to actually show my love for myself as my own Savior or someone else ultimately? You cling to Christ. You cling to Him. And once again, when He says mother more, father more, son or daughter more, maybe we could just pause for a moment and apply that a little bit. Being younger, I've thought in terms of parents. And the older I get with kids, I think in terms of being the parent. What's going to happen if I have children who grow up and mock me because I love Christ most? I love my kids so much. You know if you're a parent. You know if you're not a parent. There's this family kind of love. Now I start thinking more about this. I'm going to keep loving them no matter what. I've got to love Christ most. And it's going to show up in the way I respond. It's going to show up in the things that I do. And some of you have had to go through this big time. Maybe with adult children. It might even be your biggest trial ever as a Christian. Will you be faithful to Christ to the very end? By His grace, no doubt. 
because you come to Omaha Bible Church doesn't mean it's a guarantee your kids are all going to be Christians. Just because you go to church anywhere doesn't guarantee that all your kids are going to become Christians. We pray that they do become Christians. But at the end of the day, love for Christ trumps everything if we're Christians. Loving Him, holding fast to the good confession. When your world is getting rocked circumstantially because of relationships, we could broaden this from family because He's using family because they're the close ones traditionally. Your world is getting rocked relationally. Will you, by God's grace, hold fast to the good confession? And I'm saying, and hopefully reminding you, we're talking about Christ who has the power to confess you before the Father. It's worth it. Keep clinging to Him and to His gospel. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul talks about counting everything lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Okay, number four, let's wrap this up now. A fourth and final behavior characteristic of every true disciple, and that would be a true disciple takes up his cross and follows Jesus. A true disciple takes up his cross and follows Jesus. Verse 38 says, And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Gulp. Now, would you please just do me a favor and, and, and read this like the normal piece of literature that it is so you carry the, catch the profound nature of it? Read this in the gospel narrative, narrative of Matthew. We're learning about persecution in this context. I came to bring a sword in this context. Jesus is going to go to the cross in this context. And he says... Whoever does not take up take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He's not speaking in terms that we might speak of, well, you know, we've all got our crosses to bear. Please don't ever say that. Please don't ever say that again if you say that. I've got a hangnail today. I'm really battling an ulcer. Oh, you should meet my mother-in-law. We all have our crosses to bear. You say, why are you being critical, Pastor? I thought it was good to quote the Bible. Well, <laughs> I don't know whose paraphrase that is, but it's not a good one. So anyway, <laughs> guys, it's not what Jesus is talking about. It's not the trivialities of things. The cross, if it is anything, is emblematic here of ultimate, severe, unparalleled humiliation. And we know it's more than that because it's our atoning sacrifice. But you're talking about a culture that knows all about crucifixion. You're talking about a culture both during this time and even for centuries after would know all about crucifixion to the point where they would run out of cross beams. Crucifixion is reserved for the lowliest of the low. It's oftentimes not just for the murderers. It's for people who commit murder while committing an insurrection, trying to overthrow the government. This is for rebels. This is never to be for a Roman citizen. It doesn't get any worse. One writer writes this regarding Roman citizens during this time. This is Cicero writing historically. This very word cross should be removed not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. Un, literally, unthinkable. If you're a Roman citizen, don't even think about a cross. It's that bad. And Jesus says to disciples, and he uses the broad, inclusive, whoever, like you and like me, if you're not willing to take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me, Ultimate humiliation for the sake of you and your confession of the gospel. That's what he's getting at, no doubt. It might mean the physical persecution on the cross, ultimate humiliation as it did for so many disciples. Man. 
That's what he's getting at. Tomorrow, where you go to school, if you go to school. Tomorrow, if you go to work. Or where you go to work, if you go to work. Tomorrow, in doing whatever you do. Or next week, or next month, or on the field, or on the court, or wherever it is. That's when this applies. Application was different from, for them immediately. For us, think of ultimate humiliation. If I say I believe that is true about Jesus, people think I am stupid. People think I am crazy. People think I've lost my marbles. It might mean a great relationship broken. It might mean my very best relationship broken. And Jesus says, unless you take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me. Are you willing to be utterly humiliated because of the good confession? If you're not a Christian, I'm going to urge you to think this stuff through. Don't sign the card. Don't walk the aisle. Count the cost. Count the cost. If you are a Christian, I'm just going to remind you, and I'm going to keep reminding you that it's worth it. Because he and he alone has the power to confess you. Makes it worth it. Whoever does not take up his cross. Verse 39 then says, whoever finds his life, this is a great statement of paradox. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. At first, it's kind of a riddle. You think, I don't get it. Then you think about it, you read it again, you say, I get it. If you find your life in these relationships, and it's all about this, and these are what defines you, and this is your life. My life is soccer. My life is my family. My life is my job. My life is, we talk that way. Paul talks this way. To live is Christ. To die is gain. If you find your life in these things, it ends tragically for you. On the other hand, if you lose your life for Christ's sake, your life being all that you find so significant and precious, then you actually gain life because you're showing that you really do belong to Jesus. Final question. Some of you might be thinking, you might be thinking this. I thought salvation was by grace alone. And this seems a lot like works to me. Help me understand, Pat. It's a good question. In fact, if you weren't thinking it, I want you to think it. The good confession in the Bible is related to the gospel. Everything happens in the gospel account is related to the gospel as in the good news of what Christ does. This is anything but works. This is only grace if you stop and think about it. What is the good confession? What are we confessing? We're saying Jesus and Jesus alone saves. What are we saying that causes persecution? We're saying people aren't inherently good. We're saying people can't earn their way to heaven through religious ladder climbing. We're saying that there's nothing that we can do to earn salvation. We're saying these things, and we are saying that Christ and Christ alone lived a perfectly righteous life. We're saying that Christ and Christ alone died a perfect substitutionary atoning death. We're saying that Christ and Christ alone, only because of His grace, rose again from the dead on our behalf. That's where the rub is going to come. If you say those things and you're willing to confess those things, it's going to be hard for you. Because that puts a dagger into the heart of pride and human works-based righteousness. This isn't all about works. 
This is all about you're so busy clinging to the gospel of grace alone that it creates problems. Is what this is about. If you believe the gospel, it's going to be such great encouraging news to certain people. And it's going to be the ultimate in offense to other people. And at the end of the day, all of this is the work of Christ in our life anyway. And so he gets all of the glory and he gets all of the honor and all of the praise. As we leave, as we leave, please remember, Jesus is divisive because of the gospel of grace. Please remember, Jesus is the one who is related to the Father, so he has the power. Please remember, above all other things, that it's worth it. It's worth the conflict. It's worth the tension. It's worth all of those things you might go through. Maybe read the Gospels in that light. And once again, I keep mentioning, but I'll mention it again. Read Hebrews in that light. Is it worth it? Should I buckle under the pressure and deny the Gospel of grace? It's not worth it. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. And as a church, we'll do the same. Pray with me. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the great gospel of grace that produces this kind of transformation in our lives. There are so many of us here who could testify to the fact that we, we didn't follow Jesus. We were trying to do it ourselves. It was somehow based upon our own merits, and yet Jesus saw fit to save us according to his grace. And now by his grace, we are making the good confession. We're acknowledging Jesus as our only hope. Lord, help us as a church to do that, to do so with, um, with joy and with enthusiasm and passion, with a big and heavy heart for the lost, but with fidelity as well. And Lord, for those who are hurting in this congregation because of the tension that they feel in their family or with their very close friends, Lord, I just would ask that you would remind them again, even here today, to hold fast to the good confession. And Lord, for those of us who are not particularly going through a season like that, that we would be sensitive to others and that we would find ourselves praying and we would find ourselves encouraging. And also we would find this as a time where we're finding our own commitment to Christ according to his mercy, bolstered and built up, preparing ourselves even for whatever it is you might have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.